Well, good morning again. Um, my name is Sally Clough. Most of you probably know that Sylvia Borstein is away for the month of August, so I'm one of her many substitutes, so thank you for coming this morning. What I'd like to talk to you about today is um, the comparing or judging mind. <laughs> Some of you familiar with that? It's not a new concept. It's not one that we've discovered here in the 21st century, that's for sure. The Buddha spoke a lot about this quality, this tendency of mind. Uh, the term for it in Pali is mana, M-A-N-A. And it's usually translated as conceit. But I actually think comparing is a more helpful translation because that, to me, gives more of a sense of what I think the Buddha was talking about. Because with conceit, I know I associate it more with pride, with um, self-promotion. Whereas the, the definition of uh, mana that the Buddha gives is judging one or another to be better than, worse than, or even the same as another. So it's a very broad-based definition of this word mana, conceit or comparing. And as you can see by those three, uh, we're probably doing one or the other of them all of the time. It's really very um, endemic. It's very persistent in our mindset. I'd like to start with reading um, a bit from a sutta from um, it's a little extract, actually, from a collection of teachings that uh, Ajahn Amaro, who I'm sure some of you know, has put together on um, Nibbana or enlightenment. And I've been, you can see that's my page, I've been going through it um, with Ajahn Amaro uh, as a teaching. It's been really interesting. This is called Attending to the Deathless Element. And it's about um, two bhikkhus at the time of the Buddha who were some of his, two of his closest disciples. They were very well advanced in their practice. Um, it says, Then Venerable Anuruddha went to where Venerable Sariputta was staying and on arrival greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings, he sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Sariputta, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. My persistence is unaroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness. So he's got pretty good practice. <laughs> I would like to be able to describe my practice in such terms. Yet he goes on to say, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging. Basically, there's still defilements or hindrances present, um, and he's attached. There's not, not a lack of clinging. And Sariputta answers him, says, my friend, when the thought occurs to you, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. That is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my persistence is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness is established and unshaken, my body is calm and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness. That is related to your restlessness. 
When the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released through the outflow, from the outflows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if, abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element, basically the unconditioned nibbana. And of course it ends by saying, after that, Anuruddha did that, abandoned those three qualities, and immediately became an arahant. <laughs> so it's pretty simple, really. You just have to abandon them. But why, why I wanted to read that was just to give you a sense of the pervasiveness of this quality of conceit. The other ones that are there also, I'm sure we experience of restlessness and anxiety, but there are scope for another whole talk. We'll concentrate on conceit or comparing how subtle it can be. Of course, there are the gross examples of the judging mind, the comparing mind that I'm sure we're all familiar with. But what I wanted to point to is that this quality of conceit or mana is actually not fully extinguished, not fully released until one becomes an arahant. This uh, venerable Anuruddha was what's known as an anagami. He was in third stage of enlightenment. That quality of conceit is still present. So the basic message is we better learn how to work with it skillfully because we're going to be dealing with it for a long time yet to come. So these four stages of enlightenment, some of you have probably um, heard about them in the Theravada tradition, commonly considered to be four stages in this progression towards full and complete enlightenment. The first stage of stream entry or satipana um, what one abandons is, there are 10 fetters that are abandoned through these four stages. In this first stage of stream entry, three fetters are abandoned. Um, self-identity, that is really fixed view of a sense of self, really convinced there is a permanent abiding self. Doubt, doubt in the practice, your ability to do the practice, doubt in the possibility of freedom, doubt in all kinds of things. And um, the conviction that you can actually attain freedom through practicing rites and rituals, through actually not doing the practice itself, but just through the form of rites and rituals that one can attain freedom. The second level, once returning, um, greed, aversion, and delusion are weakened, they're lessened. At the third stage, non-returning, which venerable Anuruddha was at, Anagami, um, sensual passion and aversion are completely eliminated. But it's only at Arhantship, that final stage of enlightenment, that the final five fetters are abandoned, which is passion for being or non-being, um, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance, those last three that he was referring to in the sutta. So not until that last stage is this quality of mind of conceit finally actually eradicated. So it just gives you a sense of the inherent or, or um, uh, tendency that we have to do this, how inherent it is in our human psyche. So as I said, the Buddha often talked about this concept in many, many suttas. In one, he actually said, this was said by the Blessed One, said by the Arhant, so I have heard. Abandon one quality 
monks, and I guarantee you non-return. Which one quality? Abandon conceit as the one quality, and I guarantee you non-return. Non-return is that third stage of enlightenment. So that's sort of conceit in its uh, most pervasive and subtlest sense. The one that we deal with probably is a little more on, a gro- more on a more gross level than that, I know for myself. And in uh, speaking to many people about this tendency of mind, I really get a sense of how common it is, how pervasive it is, how many of us grapple with this as a painful issue in our lives. And there are so many forms that this judging, this comparing takes. We judge others, we judge ourselves, there's a lack of self-acceptance that, that can be quite strong, quite pervasive. And there's also the sense of being judged. You know, if we're busy judging others, we automatically presume that they're doing the exact same back to us. So it's always going back and forward between those two. So I've thought a lot about um, judging and why it is so persistent, why it is so pervasive. And um, one of the things I came up with, and I I don't think this is a a new insight, but um, it really seems true to me, is that it wasn't that long ago in our evolution, you know, getting back quite a way though, when we were more um, primitive, when we were more, you know, even in the, more in the animal realm, when we had to make a decision on meeting a new being. Does it eat it, me or do I eat it? You know, should I run or should I attack? That's very much there in our genetic makeup. And you can see it today still obviously in the animal realm. Even if you have pets, you can see it as dogs interact with one another, of trying to size each other up, or horses or cats. You know, there's this constant need to know where you stand in the hierarchy of beings that you're coming into contact with. And at one level of development, it's, um, it's a life issue. It's a life or death issue. It's not just, you know, do they like me or not? It's will they eat me or not? It gets quite serious. So this is definitely in our genetic makeup from those evolutionary times. I recently read a fascinating book by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel that speaks about the development of um, human civilization and why certain civilizations developed in the way that they did and why some stayed what's considered more primitive, whereas others, you know, like in the West, developed to the point of everything being uh, instant and technologically based and all of the other um, comforts and challenges we have in our society today. And what he talked about, one of the things he said was it was only 7,500 years ago in human history that the automatic response on meeting a stranger was to try to kill them. Because you didn't know them. If they were a stranger, they were considered an enemy. And it was only about 7,500 years ago that humans gathered into large enough communities that there was a chance that you didn't know someone who was still a member of your community. And so you wouldn't necessarily have to try to kill them. When they started gathering into clans and small villages where there was more than, I don't know how many people it is that we feel we can remember. It's, it's only in the hundreds that we really can recognize on a consistent basis. Um, and when it got larger than that, they had to make a shift in how you related 
to meeting a stranger. This man actually spent, Jared uh, Diamond spent a lot of time in Papua New Guinea where he did some of this research. And he said in traditional Papua New Guinea society, even to this day, in traditional Papua New Guinean society, when strangers meet away from the context of village or family, they have to sit down and talk to each other for a very long time to establish their points of relationship. You know, my brother's cousin or my sister's husband or whatever, to know that they were actually part of the same community. And again, didn't necessarily have to try to kill one another. So here in the West, we don't so much have to do that, most of the time, hopefully. Um, but that sense of comparison is still there when we meet another person. Even here in America, meant to be the land, the classless society that got away from um, the very rigid hierarchical societies in places like England, it's still very prevalent. I'm sure you've experienced it yourself. Because here we have so much more of a sense of a pressure to succeed, to be a, a success, to make something of oneself, to be different in some way. And this tendency, again, leads us to compare and leads to ambition and envy. There, which are results of things that come out of this comparing or um, conceit. In Asian societies, for those of you that have spent um, some time in those kinds of cultures, you may have felt um, a different way of um, relating, interrelating with each other there. The teachings on karma, on cause and effect, are much more integrated there. They're actually taught and understood from a very early age. So there's much more of a sense of one's place in the world. And even though there's some definite limitations to that, because it's, you know, uh, the, the tendency is, you know, if your father was a tailor, you'll be a tailor, you know, that there's not much of a sense of transcending what you were born into. And that has two sides to it, of course. It leads to a sense of settledness where there's not so much a sense of competition or needing to struggle or, or, or do better than one's neighbor. It can also lead to a sense of fatalism when there's not much of a sense of initiative and energy in, um, in one's experience of the world. In tribal societies too, um, no one owned very much that was very different. Everyone had access to the same raw materials and made the same kinds of things. You know, maybe there was a chief's and a chief's family that had a bigger hut or accumulated more belongings. But there wasn't a huge disparity between what people owned and how they lived. If any of you saw that wonderful movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, um, it came out years ago about um, an Af a South African um, tribe into which I think it was a Coke bottle was brought. And this thing that to us was just a throwaway thing, because it was different, because it was unique, became the, the cause of so much grief and struggle and envy because there was something different that only one person could have because there was only one of it. Here in the West, we have whole magazines devoted to how to be different how to be special. You know, Martha Stewart and her million ways to decorate a Thanksgiving table. And if you don't do something to differentiate yourself, whether it's the way you dress or think or wear, you're mundane, you're boring. And you see this, you know, from very early on, 
um, in the teenage years, even though there's a pressure in some ways to be the same, there's definitely those that are in and out and what's cool and what's not. We actually, it's perpetuated by the media in our society, this force, this, this um, striving to be both special and in tune with you know, the certain culture that you're trying to be a part of. It used to be that um, in these tribal societies, all we had to compare ourselves to were the people around us, our family and friends, the people in the village who, as I said, pretty much owned the same kinds of things that we do. Well, with the, the reach of global culture, we can compare ourselves to almost anyone. You know, we have these constant images coming to us through movies and television and, and magazines of what people are wearing and, and eating and uh, doing in New York and Paris and England and uh, you know all over the world. All of these images which we can use to measure ourselves against, measure ourselves up to. We've even created things like the Guinness Book of Records, you know, where everything can be differentiated. You know, who's the best at this? And it's getting quite absurd, actually, the things that people are coming up with to differentiate themselves so that they can be special. And the amount of energy that people will put into becoming the best at some bizarre thing. I mean, I can't even think of, you know, it used to be just how many people in a phone booth that's gone way beyond that as to what they will do to, you know, get your name in a book, be a little bit famous. I have a teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, who was actually here um, a few weeks ago. He did a weekend, maybe some of you spent some time with him. He's a wonderful young Tibetan Lama who is spending a lot of time in the West um, and uh, teaching Westerners and really becoming quite sensitive to, attuned to the Western psyche and uh, using that to help his teaching. He also obviously teaches back home where he lives in Kathmandu, uh, teaches all the Tibetans that come to practice with him, but goes to many other Asian countries, Malaysia and Singapore. And he was talking a while ago about this tendency towards self-hatred, self-judging that is so common here. And he actually called it the disease of the West. But he said the unfortunate thing is it's spreading. It's, it's contaminating more and more people. And as he goes to countries like Malaysia and Singapore that are becoming more westernized, he says he's seeing it a lot in the young people of those societies, that they're also having this judging, critical um, tendency towards themselves. And it's just getting stronger and stronger as the media perpetuates all of these different images of who you should be or could be, or you know, who you don't have a hope of being. <laughs> and you've probably heard this story before of the Dalai Lama at one of the early conferences that he attended um, in Dharamsala for uh, Western Buddhist teachers, so a whole group of people in the 80s um, who were t uh, teaching in the West went to spend a few days with him and talk about the issues of bringing the Dharma to the West. And one of the teachers asked the Dalai Lama, how could, you know, he described the situation and it said, how can we work with our students that are so filled with self-hatred that have this really strong tendency to judge and be critical of themselves? And a lot of this was going through the translator, even though the Dalai Lama speaks reasonable English. And he and the translator spent quite a few minutes discussing this question. Everyone's waiting to hear what he would say. And finally, the translator comes back and, and says, the Dalai Lama wants to know, what do you mean by self-hatred? 
what, what are you talking about? And so they had to really describe to him this tendency of mind because it was so unfamiliar to the Dalai Lama. And, you know, he's been asked these questions many times and I've heard him say things like, don't think that way. You know, you are a wonderful human being with all of this potential and marvelous qualities. You shouldn't think that way. This is wrong thinking. He'll be quite firm about it to say this is not a helpful way to um, experience yourself. He's actually, uh, I'm sure he's talked about it in many books. One that I read recently was his book, The Art of Happiness, where he spoke quite often about the need to work very directly with this tendency of mind to be self-critical. So this tendency to compare, to judge one another, as I said, the media perpetuates it. It's actually the, the source of many, much humor in, on television, especially many sitcoms, things like Seinfeld. If you look at that program, so much of the humor is made up of comparing and judging themselves and the people they come into contact with, usually not in a most pleasant light. You know, it's, it's a very scathing kind of humor. And one of my favorites that was a little bit of a <coughs> cult hit, absolutely fabulous. Did anyone ever watch that? I sometimes feel a little embarrassed to admit that I liked that show because it was a little out there. But it was so totally based on uh, this character, Edwina, and her sense of herself in relationship to others around food, around dress, around looks, around um, social status, around income. It was just a constant theme in that show. And you could see how much pain it caused her to be constantly in that mode of comparing and judging. One of her favorite lines was, you know, I'm as generous as the next person, but this is all about me, me, me. And that's so much what this judging leads us to do. We're we're in this state of pain and quandary about who we are, but it's all self-referencing. This comparison keeps us caught in dualism, in this, this separation between self and other. I'm this way, you're that way. I like this, I don't like that. I like this about me, I don't like that about me, I don't like that about you. I wish I had that, that you had. You know, it's just this constant sense of comparing and separation because we can only do this comparing when we have this strong sense of separation that you are very different from me and that there's a way in which there's something wrong in that equation. It's really integral to our Western life. It's actually uh, educated into us from a very early age. And there are some aspects of this comparing, obviously, that are helpful. You know, in athletic achievement or academic ability or um, even when we shop, you know, we need to be able to compare. Is A better than B? You know, is, is 16 ounces at $2.50 better value than 12 ounces at $2? You know, we're always having to you know, hold up two things and and judge between them. So there's nothing inherently wrong with this ability to do this. It's actually a useful skill. Where it gets painful, where it gets problematic is when we turn it against ourselves, when we turn that judging mind, that, that critical mind towards ourselves and our own ability and our own sense of our own being. Because we always feel that if we're different from someone, One of us must be better in some way or another. 
And if you really look at this, it's painful whichever way we decide because there's a sense of either envy or loss or whatever way you go with that, there's pain involved. So if any of you have sat a long retreat, um, uh, Vipassana retreat, I know some of you have, you may have had um, a closer or a more immediate sense of how common this judging mind is because when we drop away a lot of the busyness of our life, what becomes really apparent to us are the habitual tendencies of mind. And for many of us, one of these strong habitual tendencies is the judging mind. It can actually seem like when we're on retreat that the judging mind actually gets stronger. I hope that that's not the case, but it certainly feels like that at certain times because when there's not a lot of stimulation, we immediately look at our um, surroundings to have this sense of who we are and how we're doing in our retreat. You know, I'm walking slower or faster or sitting longer or shorter or more restless or less restless. It's this constant sense of comparing in the quietness of the retreat that so many people go on, uh, on in and out of. I can remember uh, being on a long retreat and having being having a, a period where it seemed like that was all I was doing, once you tune into it and start to pay attention, it's like a lot of things. You just notice it more and more and more. It doesn't slip under the radar as much. And being on one retreat and uh, going to my teacher again and again and saying, this is so painful. All I'm doing is judging, you know, critical about myself and others. It's just this constant stream of thoughts in this direction. You know, and he kept giving me this advice about, what to do, and none of it really seemed to work. Um, and then one day I noticed that there was this whole level of judging that I hadn't been paying attention to. And that was the judging where I was saying to myself that I was better than these other people. You know, oh, I was sitting longer, or walking slower, or you know, taking less food, or whatever it might have been that I <laughs> held up in my mind as something to compare myself to another. And it was interesting to note that those judgments that really fed my sense of, of who I was, I wasn't noticing because they weren't as painful. Even though once I noticed them, I could see the suffering in them because they are suffering. Because again, it's just that sense of separation. But it was just interesting for me to note how the negative ones I, I really felt as they came in, but the, the ones that were building myself up were sort of, Yes, you know, not doing too badly here. They just were, 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 were feeding this judging mechanism in this more subtle way. So I had to really bring another whole level of mindfulness to, to this process. Because we're always trying to judge how we're doing, you know, in all aspects, but especially in our meditation practice, you know, whether we're new to it or we've been practicing for a long time. Just uh, sat a retreat with Ajahn Sumedho, the wonderful um, American monk who's now an abbot of a monastery in England. And he said in his early years of practice, he was always asking his teacher, Ajahn Chah, am I a Sotapanna yet? That's the first stage of enlightenment. He'd go every now, am I there yet? You know? And Ajahn Chah would just say, how do I know? You know? And Ajahn Sumedho, <laughs> after a while, had to realize that it wasn't a helpful question. I mean, whether he was or wasn't, Ajahn Chah wasn't going to tell him. And in the end, it doesn't really make any difference. His experience was what his experience was, whatever label he wanted to put on it. Uh, and I was on a retreat in uh, India 
one of, it was actually one of my first retreats many years ago. Um, and in India, the retreats are wonderful because um, people come together from all over the world. They're very international. And uh, there must have been 100, 150 people on this retreat. And of course, we all went into silence. We didn't have a chance to get to know each other before the retreat started. And spent all these days together in silence. And there I was with my judging mind, picking out people and going, oh, she's Dutch. Oh, I'm sure he's Italian. I bet he's English. You know, just from their mannerisms, the way they walked, their, their, the way they looked or dressed or whatever assigning people all of these nationalities and of course with that the appropriate um, character types that I associated with those nationalities as one tends to do. Um, and so it was quite a shock at the end of the retreat when people started talking to find that you know the person I had said was Dutch turned out to be Italian and the one who was English was uh, Israeli or whatever it was. Virtually none of my assumptions were correct. You know, everything that I had assumed about this person and from my projection onto them of a certain nationality, then, you know, whether I would like them or not, or whether they'd be this way or that way, just totally moving into that um, projection and comparison and finding it wasn't true. Has anyone had that experience of judging someone? How many times do we have to have it to learn that we actually can't know someone before we actually do know them. You know, when you meet someone for the first time and you assume something about them, you judge something about them, and that then conditions how you relate to them until you get to know them and you realize they're not the way I thought at all. Some, would someone like to talk about and a time when that happened, when they made an assumption about someone and it turned out to be wrong, it turned out to be off the mark a little? Yeah. Sure. Both artists, and I started to notice that she was being very grippy around. Mm. And finally, one night, I asked her if she didn't like me, and she said, "Well, I'm starting to like you. I thought you were this, that, and the other, and now I'm <laughs> see that you're not." <laughs> so I got to—I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've done it, too, mm -hmm. but boy, that really brought it home being on the other end. Of the right. Life. That's interesting. So what? I mean, did you were you able to work with this relationship and have it develop? Yeah. 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 Once she dropped mm -hmm. who she thought I was, mm -hmm. then we could both get to know who we really were. Yes. And discovered that we did in fact have a lot of things yes. in common. Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm. Anyone else? Yeah. Well, something that I've been that, that happened to me just about uh, maybe a week or a week or two weeks ago. You know, I teach yoga up at the residential retreat. And there was another yoga teacher that I know. She comes to Ustanga sometimes in, in smaller Ustangas. And I liked her, but there was always something that I could feel. And I kept thinking, was I jealous of her? Because we're both yoga teachers. I kept looking and looking mm -hmm. and looking for what m might be up to mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. Because I really liked her and I wanted to like mm -hmm. her. And I was open to liking her, but there was this thing. And so I just thought, well, it was, I assumed it was a me. And at the end of the retreat, when I was teaching yoga up there, and she came to the class, at the end, she came up, and she says, well, Sita, there's something I want to talk to you about. Should we do it now or, or later? And I said, well, yeah, I'm very curious. <laughs> 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 and she said, I thought 
felt like women meet, women met in previous class, we did a dialogue, and we really connected. Mm-hmm. And she says, then the next three times, she says, there were three times I felt that you snubbed me. Hmm. And I don't even remember. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know I did that. Mm-hmm. But maybe I did. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I slept with you. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And, I, and, and we just, we cleared all the answers. Mm. Mm-hmm. But somebody had to step forward and yes. say something. Yeah. No, it's so true. Mm-hmm. Someone had when there is that sense of something going on. For me, what I've really tried to make a practice is not making those initial judgments. It's really difficult because we meet someone, and you know, there's a natural tendency to think of what you like or don't like about them. But I've been wrong so often, or I find I've found myself sort of. Doing that little bit of closing down where, you know, I just can't let one more person into my life. It doesn't matter who they are, you know. So it's easy for me to just say, they're this way, I don't have, you know, enough energy for this. And yet, you know, coming to see that if I can just be open and allow a friendship to develop, that, that this person can actually be quite wonderful. Anyone else? Yes. I know Right, The good thing about this topic is, from my senses, most people can relate to it. Actually, I met someone, I I was doing an interview with someone the other day, and this man said, I don't have a judging, self-critical mind. (laughs) He's quite convinced of it. You know, it's wonderful that he doesn't. He's the first person I've ever met. But it's it's true, who's who's acknowledged that. It's, you know, why it's helpful to reflect on this topic is these these judging thoughts can become so much, um, as I said, creating this sense of separation because it's all about that. Who are you and how are you going to impact me? For the better, for the worse, am I going to get something? Are I going to be upset? It's, It's just a constant sense of pushing away or pulling towards. And the more we're aware of how we do it, the more able we're, we possibly can be to just let them go, to see them come and go. One of the, the, um, my sources of inspiration for this talk and my reflections on judging was uh, reading this book and doing a workshop with um, Brian Brown, Byron Brown. Some of you may know him. He's a student of Hamid A.H. Almas, the, the man who started the Ridwan School. 
This book is in the bookstore, Soul Without Shame. And as it says, it's a guide to liberating yourself from the judge within. I did a, a workshop with uh, Byron Brown here at Spirit Rock, and it was really interesting um, to, to spend, a, I think it was two days, um, reflecting on this topic. And some of these thoughts that I have, as I said, are inspired by, by this book and that workshop. He talks about how the judge came into being, why, why it's there for us. And uh, it, it's, it, you know, some, of, some of it is fairly obvious. As children, we needed to um, discover or be taught these societal, societal norms that help us to integrate into society, to be a part of the community, um, to develop a conscience, you know, to know what's right and wrong, to have a sense of ethics and moral behavior. The judge is all helpful in um, helping us with that process. But it's when we internalize this procedure, when we internalize this voice, that it can become overactive and overcritical. It becomes what we call the judge, where it's, it's just always looking at our experience, at who we are and what we do and what other people do, and becomes critical of it. Um, and so as we develop, as we mature, we can come to see ways in with which this voice of the judge isn't so helpful to us anymore, ways in which it limits us and actually controls us, controls our experience. Because the basic message of the judge is, I'm not good enough. I'm not okay. You know, that's the basic underlying message most of the time. Then that people won't like me just as I am. That's a really common one. Even when we're in um, states of judging ourselves positively, it's point, you know, it's trying to direct our attention to the parts of ourselves that we think are good because we're worried that people won't like us just as we are. It's still the same thing happening. So I'd like to read a bit from Byron Brown about this activity of the judge. He says, the judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act, <clears throat> act in your life. It is a guard that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions in your own soul. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing in you. When you were a young child, it was important that adults, that parents or responsible adults, were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with your judge and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. It's sort of a double-edged sword, that last one. Lest we forget, the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. 
none of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the soul. So one of the questions we worked with in this workshop with Byron Brown was uh, in dyads to ask the question, what's right about judging? So uh, those of you who have done this kind of work where you work in pairs and you ask each other a question and you keep asking it and giving the answer back until you get to whatever place of, of depth or stillness that that question leads you to. So it was an interesting reflection to me to actually reflect on what's right about judging because as, as Byron Brown said, there are things that are useful at one point anyway or in some ways about judging. So to really understand the role of the judge and how it has served us in the past, but to see that the ways that it did serve us are now perhaps outdated and now actually mechanical and restrictive and limiting. Um, the way we experience ourselves. So some of the ways that the judge serves us, as uh, you mentioned, are we feel we know what's right. We know what's good and bad, what's, what's right about an experience or something that's happening. The judge can feel like a kind of wisdom, a kind of knowing, a kind of um, experience. We, when the judge is operating, we feel a sense of safety and control. I think it's an illusion, but that's what we feel. When it's operating, we know what's happening. We know what's good. We know what's bad. We know what we like and don't like. Even if it's negatively directed towards ourselves, there's still a sense of knowing. And it can help us stay out of trouble. You know, obviously, it can help us um, stay out of doing things that might cause us harm. Again, that can be a limiting sense, too, that staying out of trouble can be out of fear that doesn't allow us to fully express ourselves. When we judge others negatively, it can give us a sense of superiority. When we do that, we don't have to look at ways in which we feel inadequate. It's often the force behind judging others negatively is we feel better about ourselves and therefore we don't have to acknowledge the places that we feel limited, that we feel frightened, that we feel scared. And it also leads to that sense of separation of I'm not like them. Oh, look at her doing that or him doing that or look at what they're wearing. I would know better. You know, that sense of separation and I'm not like that. I'm not in with that other person. Even when we judge someone else as being better than ourselves, there's a way in which that serves us. And it's helpful again to reflect on how that might work for you. There actually can be a sense of safety in feeling diminished because we don't have to expand into the world and manifest in a very active and um, exuberant way in, in our life. We can actually hide behind this sense of diminishment and feel safe and feel secure there. When we judge others negatively, it also can feed our sense or feed or justify feelings of envy or unfairness 
oh, it's because they have this or they did this that I don't have or am able to do X, Y, and Z. And so we can, again, externalize our um, difficulties with the world. And when we judge ourselves negatively, again, to look and see, to reflect, how did that serve us? When it reinforces our view of ourselves as unworthy and we internalize the message we've taken often from society, from our peers, from our teachers, of being inadequate, of being unworthy, of being um, not good enough, it's an interesting um, reflection to, to see how that serves us. I was teaching a retreat in Perth, Australia earlier this year and there was a yogi on the retreat who was chronically late to everything. You know how you immediately notice that about every sitting, five minutes late, he would come into the room. I, I heard from the cooks that he was always late for his yogi job. Um, and the cook told me that one day, you know, after a few days of him being late, you know, the cooks, as, as you know, if you've been on a retreat, they have a certain amount of work to finish in a very limited period of time. And if someone's late, it can really affect their ability to get the meal out. So she said what she did is she got a piece of paper before he'd come in, and she wrote down the time that he was meant to be there, 10.45. And then in big letters, she wrote, you know, 11.06 or whatever, which was the time he actually showed up. And he came into the kitchen, and she just held up that sign to him. No verbal communication. Um, I saw him in an interview a day or two later, and he said it was really very... Um, provoking for him when that happened because he really had to see how his chronic lateness impacted, impacted this woman who was serving out of the goodness of her heart under a lot of pressure. She was, uh, there was only one and a half cooks for about 35 people, so she was doing three meals a day. Um, and he really got a sense of how his lateness impacted her. And he started to reflect on why he was always late. It was the first time that he'd stopped to do it because it was something that was chronic in his life. He did it all the time. And when he came into the interview, he actually broke down in tears and he said he finally realized why he was always late. He said, I'm late everywhere. I'm late picking up my children when I pick them up after school. I'm late for meetings. You know, I'm late visiting friends. I'm always late. And uh, I know I, when he started talking about being late, I, I always had a sense that most people were late out of a sense of wanting to control the other person. You, know, you can wait for me kind of thing. It's a, almost a sense of power. He actually said that he was late because it reinforced his sense of unworthiness that was so deep in him that he needed to have it um, validated from the outside world because that was his view of himself. And he, he needed to affirm it from the outside world because it was stro so strong for him. He, he needed to know it was the correct view. And he did that by being late so people were always angry with him, <coughs> always frustrated, always you know, yelling and complaining and you know, telling him how hopeless he was. And that would feed the sense he had of himself of being worthless. And even though it was very painful to see this, it was really very freeing. He really finally had a doorway into this sense of unworthiness, that it was the bottom of all that he did in his life. And he said he used to overcompensate by sometimes thinking he was much better than everyone else in his work or whatever else he did, 
But he even saw how that too was manifesting out of his deep sense of unworthiness. So <clears throat> out of really seeing this lateness, the how it was manifesting, led him back into this deep sense of unworthiness. And so that was how the judge served him. So just on hearing this, have any, do you have any reflections for yourself on how this judge has served you? What's been right about judging for you? And even in ways that you now see that perhaps it's limiting. Mm. 
And it's wonderful. You have a choice about this, and it sounds like you've made it, and that's the most powerful thing you can do. Whatever, wherever that leads you from there, making that choice is really the big step in learning to heal. And it will be painful because you'll have to face all of those feelings again. No, please don't. You really need to open up and, and be with all of these difficult feelings and honor them and then let them go. Because they're not who you are. That's the important thing. They're just, again, these messages from outside that you've internalized, but they're not who you are. So it's wonderful that you've made that decision. I wish you every, every bit of luck and joy and blessing on your journey and healing it. judging mind sees yourself as, as better, getting better, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, that really resonated with me because, um, and I, I don't have a whole handle on it, but I think part of it comes from mm-hmm. um, being raised with some idea of fairness, mm-hmm. fair, yep. even. My husband teases me about this a lot because if I cut cake they are all even Uh, but one one of the things that causes me a lot of discomfort and and sometimes pain is when maybe i'm at um a place where a retreat or someplace where there's food that's out and the person ahead of me there's a lot of people behind me the person ahead of me is taking mountains of food somebody with a twist and there's miles of people behind us and i think why aren't they being more mindful of how many people are here? It really bothers me. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really gets me when, <laughs> when I feel like people are being piggy, you know? It's one of the things that just comes up for me over and over mm-hmm. again where I just have to go, okay, you know, there's probably more food coming out of the kitchen, you know? Maybe some of us are supposed to be hungry today. <laughs> Whatever, you know? <laughs> Can you think of any other um, ways of working with that apart from those two responses? <laughs> Which is sort of dealing with the externals of the situation. Well, you know, part of it is, is my wanting to control the mm-hmm. food everybody has. Mm-hmm. So I can see that there's a control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my mother, I know, taught me really well about areas in my life where I've learned how to want to control things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm probably a little blind here, so that's all that's coming up. Well, it, the control, I think, is, a, is definitely a big part of it. And there's this wonderful line, and now I'm even forgetting who, you all probably know it, that God, God grant me the wisdom to control oh, the things. Yeah. To, 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 
exactly. That that yeah. you know the Dharma is all there in that that uh, one line, because what comes to me in this situation is this, the, especially in retreat where you you know you can't speak and you don't you're not in charge of the kitchen. <laughs> when there's something we really can't do something about, the best antidote is just acceptance. This is the way things are. This person is taking the food. And it doesn't matter, is there more food or not? Are we going to be hungry or not? This is the way things are in this moment. And I can't control it. It, it can become quite an interesting reflection. Again, you get back to, where is the suffering in this? The suffering is my wanting to control something that I can't control. And so that wisdom of knowing, you know, knowing that we can't control something and therefore we have to accept it. That's a really profound and deep insight to have. Um, the Dalai Lama often talks about it, about things like worry. He said, there's something you're worried about. You think about it and you can do something about it. Good, do it, no need to worry. You think about it and there's nothing you can do about it. What's the point of worrying? Don't worry. Either way, you come to the same point. Worrying doesn't help. And in the same way, this internal sense of whether it's anxiety, worry, or wanting to control, that reflection, can I do something? Yes, no, doesn't matter. It comes to the same point. Worry, you know, the internal agitation is extra. It's always extra. So just again, reflecting on that, that the internal angst, the internal suffering is not a necessary component of the situation. Someone taking more food than their you know, dessert, yeah, their their, than their fair share <laughs> is not a, an automatic or, um, you know, necessary uh, component of suffering. You know, it's just what is. <laughs> yes. So what shifted for you? <laughs> yes, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Sometimes that's what it takes with when this tendency is so insidious, so persistent. It really takes, you know, screaming about it. I'm just not going to do this anymore. Mm. Yeah. Great. Right. Totally. Totally. Great. Because yeah, we are running out of time, and I didn't get through all my notes. We should start talking about how to work with this judging mind. By- Byron Brown says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth of who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, 
you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judge. So this practice that we do here of Vipassana meditation is actually a profound and deep way of coming to that knowing of who we really are and what our inherent value is outside of external value systems and judgments and beliefs. It really can help us to work very deeply and directly with self-acceptance. As I said, for many of the people I see on retreats, this is a big issue for them, and it comes up very strongly on retreats. We often go through in our retreat practice what we call a life review, you know, where everything we've ever said or done comes up for us. And we go, oh, my God, you know, where to start with this? Um, but just being willing to face it, to make that decision, as you did, to say, I'm going to work with this, I'm going to shift this way of being, is so powerful. And the stillness and the depth of the meditation can really help us to make a shift in that. One of the things that really helped me with working with judgments, especially on retreat, but it's also helped in daily life because it it filters over, is to really come to see that these judgments are just another thought in the mind. As we sit here and meditate, the thoughts come and go, and you see that very clearly in your meditation practice. The line I love is, thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. And it's exactly the same with judging thoughts. If you can just see them as this blip of energy in the mind with a certain flavor, certain intensity, but that they're impermanent. They don't define who we are. And if we let them, they will. If we let them, they'll take over our experience of ourselves in the world. But if we see them very clearly as a thought, coming and going, arising and passing away, we can just let them go. They can come and we can let them go. And, it, and we can actually just, another judgment, another thought. You know, Jack Cornfield likes to say, start counting them. By the time you get to 500, you, know, you might be sick of them. But all of these ways of just seeing them as this other arising that we don't have to cling to, we don't have to identify with. There are also um, direct antidotes to judging, doing the metta practice, you know, where we actually actively wish ourselves and others well. It's a wonderful antidote for comparing and judging because in the metta practice, the, the um, fulfillment of the practice is where we hold all beings equal, where we're able to wish well, um, send loving thoughts to all manner of beings, the difficult person, the neutral person, um, animals and all human beings everywhere, people we love, people we don't know, have that sense of wishing well. And even though obviously we're not going to live from that place, just to know that it's possible, that it's possible to open the heart in that way and not so much feel the separation is um, a wonderful way to do. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had a class at my home. We have a, a, an old student's class that some people come to, and we get the different students to do presentations at the class. And, and uh, this month's class was on the afflictive emotions, and someone chose to do a presentation on judging. 
because she said it was her old and familiar friend. She said, very, very connected to it. Or, not, no, not connected to it, but just very familiar. She's a therapist. So she spoke in her presentation of all of the different therapeutic models of um, the judge, because it's obviously not just a Buddhist concept. We didn't make it up here. It's, it's, it's throughout society. And one of the, the, the um, descriptions that they give in the therapeutic world is that, that judging is is the inability to deal effectively with differences. And I quite like that because it sort of puts it in this neutral kind of way, you know, when the judge comes up, oh, I'm just not dealing very effectively with the differences I'm finding here. It takes the charge a little bit out of it. And it seems like something that we can develop, you know, we can develop that skill to deal effectively with differences. So we are just what's what's in, in implied in that is the mindfulness to be aware that this is happening and I didn't I don't know if I mentioned that but that obviously is always the first step it, to know that the judging thoughts are happening like in my example in my retreat practice you've got to be aware that they're happening and then to be able to bring in some lightness about them is one of the best allies we can have because usually we get negative about the negativity we judge the judging and to be able to bring some lightness into it, to be able to see it for what it is, and to see, you know, the inherent, well, I was going to say foolishness. I, sometimes it is, actually. It is uh, just a foolishness. It's a conceit, you know, making something out of nothing, and to be able to laugh at that is one of the best and most skillful things we can do with judging thoughts. Anyone else? No one's had any luck at all. Mmm, <laughs> great. Yes, lovely. Yes. Actually, one of the questions I was going to ask is, uh, of those of you who are parents, any ways you've found of working with your children um, and this judging, judging tendency? Yes, yes, sorry. Yes. No. Um, I wanted to ask this issue since the beginning of the, this morning, uh, the role of parenting and how important that is. I grew up in a mini culture where judgment was the, was the main technique, mm -hmm. main mechanism mm -hmm. of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and I look at other many cultures in our society where the uh, children are raised as, as I was raised as spoiled brats. And it has been my um, anecdotal observation that, that, that those spoiled brats are very successful in life. Mm -hmm. And we who were raised to be seen and not heard and to always put others desires before our own are uh, little miser mm. who are uh, you know who just want to be good mm, but yeah. it seems as though the world has um, rewarded those spoiled brats because they have a sense right. of their uniqueness mm -hmm. and of, of their um, deserving mm -hmm. of uh, to uh, be able to express their, themselves fully mm -hmm. in this world so that's that's just a, I was wondering what your um, thoughts would be about that. 
I can see that there probably is some validity to it. I hadn't really, you know, reflected on it myself, and I'm not a parent, so I, I don't have any direct experience. Um, but there is something about a sense of entitlement that, you know, you get from being, you know, spoiled as a child that lets you manifest in a world in a certain way. I can see that that could be considered successful. You know, if we look a little deeper, then you have to look at what really is success in the world, and we have all these um, very material uh, judgments about what success is, just like your sister with the big house, you know, she's successful in that way. Is she happy? That's the question I would always ask. So again, it depends on how you're defining success, but in certain ways I can see how that would be so. Yeah. Well, I have a three-year-old. Mm. <laughs> and right now I feel like I'm going to submit <laughs> at the amount of responsibility I feel to empower her. <laughs> but um, as you were saying, I think so much of our our own judge comes from what we learn from our parents. Totally, yeah. The amount of control that they that the amount of control that we we were given, mm -hmm. or that we believe that we have, and I feel like so many of us, including myself, were raised to feel like we don't have that much power. Mm -hmm. That it's always the parents that are trying to control the children. Mm -hmm. You know, and so it's like I think I feel like if I can teach her that she has. She has control over her emotions, mm -hmm. and appreciative, totally. and all yeah. that kind of stuff. That's mm -hmm. the best thing that she can do. Totally. You know, I think the the biggest gift we can give a child always is to love it unconditionally, right. um, and that will help it to internalize the, these these values um, in a wholesome way. You know, but, but also to know that they have a sense, they have the possibility of being in control of the emotional life is really valuable. Yeah. Found myself as you're speaking, thinking, "Oh, my daughter's doing this and that. Oh, my daughter must be a horrible parent." <laughs> but you know, I'm just judging myself. Yes. You know, so if I can try to let go of that as much as I exactly. can, exactly. Best possible. thing, the role model. Yes. If they've internalized in a in a healthy way the values and the, the yeah yeah I'm sure there'll still be some times that you'll need to exert uh, once he starts getting to driving age. <laughs> one last one. Mm -hmm. 
And again, it's it's back to that point of just being aware. If you can know that it's present, most of the time we're so identified with this voice, it's who we are and it's how we perceive the world. If you can separate it from who you are, uh, that's the big help. We should finish up, so let's just sit quietly for one moment. Just a last minute of metta. Wishing ourselves well, acknowledging our deep and heartfelt wish to be happy and to be safe and to be held in love and appreciation, to be accepted and understood, and offering that same wish of well-being to everyone here that we've shared the class with. May you also be safe and happy and held in love and appreciation, accepted and understood. And may all beings everywhere feel the same sense of well-being and safety. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.